such a joy to be with you already, to sing praise to the Lord along with you and experience fellowship uh, with your church family. I really need to find out what kind of coffee uh, Tina drinks in the morning because that was some fantastic energy. I really, really could use some of that. I love your enthusiasm for the upcoming uh, children's event. And uh, in, in case this makes you feel any better about the fly, I was officiating a wedding once and a bee, it was an outdoor wedding, a bee ended up on the inside of my glasses. And uh, that was quite a moment. I, I wanted to react, you know, in a big way, but I realized if I do some sudden movements right now, the bee is going to sting my eye. And so I did my best to remain calm and continue to officiate the wedding. And eventually he flew away. And that was certainly God's grace for me in that moment. But um, those things happen. And I love the fellowship and the energy here. It is a great blessing to bring you greetings from brothers and sisters in Christ at Harvest in Westland. We really were blessed by Pastor Mike's ministry with us last month, and I'm glad to be able to bring the word to you today. It's been great to get to know some of your pastors over the last couple of years. They've been an encouragement to me, and I hope to encourage you all in the word of God this morning. I will be preaching from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, and a message called The Joy of Spiritual Growth. The Joy of of spiritual growth. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, there was a particular corner in our home where on the wall there were several markings, some of them low and then eventually getting higher as the wall went up. This was the place in our home uh, where my mother would bring us on our birthdays to measure our height and to find out how much we had grown over those past 12 months. And I was always so excited when my time came to be measured on my birthday because I was very eager to find out if I was outpacing the growth of my older brothers at that stage in their life. Any of you with older siblings may understand this, but I was very eager to catch up in height and size to my older brothers so that our fights would be fair. You know what I'm talking about? They had a size advantage over me, and so I was very eager to find out if I was catching up, and one day I might be able to actually wrestle them to the floor. In some years, I was encouraged by the growth over the last 12 months. In other years, I was discouraged to find out that I was not outpacing my older brother's growth up to that point. When it comes to our spiritual growth, how do you feel as you look over the last year of your walk with Christ, the last five years of your walk with Christ. Are you encouraged by what you see? The evidences of God's grace, God's maturing you in your walk with Christ and your service for him? Or are you more discouraged as you look over this past year? Perhaps even there's been a little bit of backsliding, a little bit of stagnation in your spiritual walk. There is great joy and blessing is you see the ways that God is growing you spiritually. And that is the focus of this passage of Scripture. And there are two main points today from this text. First, we want to look at the process of spiritual growth, and then we want to look at the impact of spiritual growth. But why don't we take another moment to pray and ask God's blessing upon our time in the Word. Father, we are so grateful for your grace and your goodness in our lives, and I pray for each one here. Whether they are encouraged by their recent growth in you or whether they are discouraged thinking of all the ways that their spiritual walk is not 
what it should be. I pray that each one would be encouraged by the truth and the power of your word today, and that through this text, you would grow us all in our walk with you so that we could have the joy of Jesus in our spiritual growth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first focus of our text today is on the process of spiritual growth, working out what God works in. The process of spiritual growth is to work out what God works in. And we'll see this as we look very closely at verses 12 and 13. I encourage you all to look at the text of Scripture with me, whether you have a copy of God's Word with you. I'm sure you at least have a smartphone and you can Google the passage and see this text for yourself. Philippians 2.12, Paul says to the brothers and sisters in the church at Philippi, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Apostle Paul really had a wonderful relationship with this church in Philippi. They were an exemplary church in many, many ways. He had encouraged them, and they had encouraged him. And yet he senses that his time on this earth may soon be coming to an end. So even as they have shown a consistent pattern of growth and maturity through his influence, he says, I want you to be at a point where you will continue to obey the Lord just as well even after I have passed off the scene. He has cared for them, so to speak, as a spiritual parent, but he wants them to be at a point of spiritual adulthood where they can obey God without Paul's direct guidance. You parents will understand his heart here as you tell your kids, I love you and I have cared for you, but I want you to grow up. That was his heart for the church at Philippi. And this is why he says, even in my absence, I want you to continue to work out your own salvation. You know, I hear a lot of salvation testimonies, and it's always wonderful to hear the story of what God has done in someone's life. And I hear a lot of testimonies go something like this. Perhaps someone grew up in a Christian home under the influence of Christian parents. Maybe they grew up in a Bible-preaching, gospel-proclaiming church, and they would say, I was saved at a young age. But it wasn't until some time later maybe at the age of 10, the age of 15, the age of 20, or even 25, when I really took ownership of my faith. We're not talking about a second work of salvation. Perhaps they were justified in Christ, but there came a moment when they took ownership of their faith. And each one of us must come to this point where our faith is less dependent on the direct influence of Christian parents, Christian mentors, even your pastors, a point where you know you will continue to walk with the Lord regardless of their continuing influence. This is important because you don't know how much longer the Lord will have that person in your life. Some of you have experienced the homegoing of a Christian parent or a Christian mentor. 
Maybe the Lord will take your Christian mentor home to be with him much sooner than you anticipate. What then? Will your faith fall apart? I sure hope not. Perhaps, and I, I hope you don't experience this, but some people have experienced their Christian mentor actually turning out to be a hypocrite or someone of poor character or perhaps even someone who abandoned their faith completely. If this, God forbid, were to happen to your mentor, what then? Would your faith fall apart too? Or would you be at a point of spiritual maturity where you would continue to work out your own salvation in their absence? See, we all should be at a point where we can say for ourselves, I know whom I have believed. Where you will say for yourself, I have decided to follow Jesus. And if no one goes with me, still I will follow. I will read the word. I will pray even if there's no one reminding me to do so. I'm going to proclaim the gospel even if there's nobody hounding me to do so. I will use my spirit spiritual gifts, even if there's nobody pressuring me to do so. I will fight temptation. I will seek accountability because I know it's the right thing to do, and I've taken ownership of my faith. This is what Paul is encouraging for the Philippians. Become less dependent on my influence and grow to spiritual adulthood. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating solo Christianity. We always need encouragement from others. We always should be teaming up with others to serve Christ and remind one another of the beauty of the gospel. I'm not talking about solo Christianity, but I am talking about a mature Christianity. That even in the absence of influences in your life, you are working out your salvation. There are a lot of contours to this text that need to be addressed. The next one that I want to address is just this idea of working out your salvation. Because most of you, I believe, would have the conviction that comes from being in a Protestant-influenced church that we do not work for our salvation. That salvation is not of works, but by grace alone in Christ alone. We affirm what this very author, the Apostle Paul, wrote in Romans 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so we can come to a text like this that says, work out your salvation, and we go, what do we do with this text? We need to find a way to explain this away because we're not saved by works, but it's very important to see this text precisely and to see that Paul does not say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work up your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Work out what God has worked in you. This is an important distinction. It's one that you can see if you turn just a couple of pages back, maybe even just one page of Scripture back to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me give you a moment to turn there, just a page or two. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, make this important distinction. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
But here, after affirming that salvation is not a result of works, notice what Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this passage of Scripture brings us a good opportunity to recognize and be reminded of the three tenses of salvation. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. In fact, there's a very small image printed on your handout there which displays this. This is just an image I found online. I don't have the artistic skills to come up with something even simple like that, but I appreciated this image that I found because I thought it was a good breakdown of the three tenses of salvation. In justification, you have been saved. In sanctification, you are being saved. And in glorification, you will be saved. At the point of conversion, when the Lord opened your eyes to see the truth and beauty of the gospel, he did a radical work in your heart to save you and to justify you, meaning that you stand righteous before God, not at all based upon your works, good or bad, but fully based on the work of Jesus Christ for you. On the cross, he took your sins in the... Rising from the grave, he gave you everlasting life, and it's all based on his work alone. So when you are justified, you are fully justified, perfectly and forever. You stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Amen? Amen. But what that does is that it not only secures your eternity, but it kicks off a process of growth in you called sanctification. That has to do with holiness. It has to do with becoming practically more like Christ throughout life. That's the present tense of salvation, that through the power of the Spirit and based on our full and complete justification, we grow more like Christ until we come to the end of our days and we see Jesus face to face and we become fully like him when we see him as he is, saved even from the possibility of sin. What a glorious day that will be. But it's important for us to know these three tenses of salvation because in a verse like Philippians 2, as you turn back there, in a verse like Philippians 2.12, we understand that we are talking about the present tense of salvation. We're not talking about justification. We're talking about sanctification, being saved from the power of sin, practically becoming more like Christ, aiming for the goal that verse 15 calls blamelessness. And unlike justification, which does not involve our efforts at all, sanctification, though it is the work of God, activates our efforts. Our works are involved, even though it's not based on our works, our works are activated. Perhaps some of you parents this year spent a little bit of extra money on your kid to get them that special birthday gift that they have always wanted. 
Imagine that you've got a son who's always wanted a nice bike, a nice new bike for his birthday. And this is the year you decide to make that happen, and you purchase that bike, and you're so excited to give your son that bicycle for his birthday. And imagine on his birthday, he sees that bike, and he is so grateful and excited that you have purchased that free gift for him. And he admires it, and he's so happy. He says, Thank you, Mom and Dad, for this wonderful gift of a bicycle. And, and you're so blessed by the fact that he's so grateful for that gift. And, and, and you wait for a few moments because he's just standing there staring at that bicycle. And you think, wow, he's really, really enamored with this gift. This is great. But he just keeps staring at that bicycle. And, and after several moments, you say, well, son, why don't you go Go and take that bicycle and, and go ride it. Take it outside. Take it for a spin. And imagine your son saying to you, well, mom and dad, I would not want to offend you by implying in any way that this is not a free gift. For me to activate my effort and my energy in using this free gift that you have purchased for me would be to offend you and imply that I am somehow earning this free gift. And I don't want to do that, so I'm just going to let the bike sit in the corner and admire it. Well, you would say, no, son, that's, that's silly. There's no question of it being a free gift. It has been purchased. It is paid in full. There's no question of earning but you're not going to enjoy this gift unless you activate your efforts and use it. And yet how sad and how strange it would be for a Christian to say, well, my salvation is a free gift. It's been bought and paid for. I can't earn it, so I'm just going to sit and admire it and not activate my effort in actually using this wonderful, powerful, life-changing gift of salvation. It would be silly. And so this is what Paul encourages, that our sanctification would activate our efforts, that we would work it out. And even as we do so, notice the end of verse 12, we do so with fear and trembling. Now, this is language that Scripture consistently uses when people are in the presence of Almighty God. Every step of your salvation is done with fear and trembling because it is the work of God. Again, we need to be reminded that our spiritual growth, even though it may seem small, it may seem mundane, it is no light matter. God is at work in every step of your spiritual growth. See, the enemy would deceive us into thinking that the really important stuff, the really significant and consequential stuff is happening somewhere else. That it's under the bright lights of Hollywood that the really important stuff is happening. Or maybe on the big stages of D.C. is where the really consequential stuff is happening. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you that the stuff that's going to matter 10 million years from now is taking place in buildings such as this is taking place in gatherings just like this one, is taking place in your life as God works in you and as you work it out. Be encouraged in this. Tremble at the amazing truth that God is at work in little old 
me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are working out what God is working in. And by the way, this text provides us an opportunity as well to acknowledge that there is no conflict, biblically speaking, between the idea of God's full and complete sovereignty over all things and the responsibility of mankind. They're sitting right here comfortably in the text side by side. It's we who might be tempted to pit those things against each other as if they're opposed to one another. But biblically speaking, there is no conflict between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It can be a little jarring sometimes to see photos from behind the scenes of a movie shoot. Perhaps there's a movie involving enemies, rivals, even people trying to harm and kill one another. Now, I can't keep up with all the superhero movies these days. I haven't seen them all, but perhaps you've got a movie where two of the movie characters are trying to kill one another. And yet, perhaps behind the scenes, the actors portraying those characters get along quite well. And perhaps between shoots, they enjoy lunch together, or they enjoy coffee together, or they're hanging out at each other's houses, just enjoying a good time. And and perhaps it's even between shoots where they're still in uniform, and yet there they are enjoying a cup of coffee together. And we see this image, and we go, how jarring. Aren't those two supposed to be at odds? And yet here they are sitting comfortably side by side, enjoying one another's company. And yet we do this with God's sovereignty and our responsibility where biblically there is no conflict at all. God is 100% sovereign in this matter and we are 100% responsible as well. Be careful to note that God is not telling us, well, God's got a part to do in your salvation, and then you have a different part to do in your salvation. And so God has done his 50%, or maybe it's 90%. God has done his 90%, and then he hands it off to you to do the other 10%. This is not what the text teaches. Nor does it teach that because it is all the work of God that we are just to be passive because God's already done it all. No, it's 100% both. God fully works it in and we are fully responsible to work it out. We work out our salvation knowing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We work out our salvation remembering the words of Jesus that apart from him, we can do nothing. We work it out because he works it in. One other thing to note about verse 13, which I think is very important. This working of God brings about not only our working for his good pleasure, but notice another term there at the end of verse 13. He also brings about our willing for his good pleasure. What this verse teaches is that God produces not only our deeds, but first he produces our good desires to will and to work his good pleasure. Now, why is this important? Because motivation is essential 
coercion will only get you so far. You can force somebody to do something, but it will not last. At the end of the day, left to themselves, people will do what they want to do. But this is bad news when it comes to those who are left in their sin and have not experienced the salvation of Christ. Because by default, we are sinners desiring what is wrong. And as James 1 tells us, every single time that sinful desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. But what happens when God redeems us? When he saves us? He changes our hearts and does a wonderful, deep work of renewing our desires. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, he gives us a hunger and thirst for righteousness deep within. God is at work in you to not only cause you to do the right thing, but to even want to do the right thing. And this is such a blessing. In fact, it may even be an encouragement for you if you struggle at times with assurance of salvation. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hand, but I would venture to guess that in a, a gathering this size, there may be a number of you who struggle often with assurance of salvation. It's one of the main questions that's brought to me as a pastor. How can I know that I'm saved because I continue to sin so often and I'm so discouraged by this and I don't know, maybe I'm not even really a Christian. Now, there's a couple of directions you can go in encouraging someone with assurance of salvation. Of course, there is the objective assurance found in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done and in the promises of Scripture that he gives. But subjectively, sometimes I will encourage someone to consider, do you have a desire to honor the Lord? Do you have a desire to follow him and please him with your life? Even that desire in and of itself is evidence that God is at work in you. Be encouraged, my friend, if God has placed that desire in your heart. And be grateful to the Lord. Because anything good that we desire and anything good that we do is God's work. We work it out but only because God works it in. Salvation is of the Lord. So we grow as we work out what God works in. And as we do this, moving to point number two, we will shine as lights in a dark world. Wonderful scripture here. Notice verse 15 of Philippians 2. Philippians 2.15, Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We live in a dark world, don't we? We live in a world that is crooked and twisted in so many ways. It was true 2,000 years ago when the Apostle Paul walked this earth, and it is true today, a dark world. Think of the politicians who advocate wicked agendas. Think about the evil things that are done in the world around us, both overt and covert. 
Think about the digital perversion that permeates our society and even affects so many believers. A multi-billion industry of perversion constantly lurking just a few clicks away. Think of the terrible abuses that take place even in homes, even in some Christian homes. Physical harm and emotional harm that leaves deep scars, both seen and unseen. It's a dark world. But in a dark world, the light shines all the brighter. It's in the darkness that the light is most clearly seen. Most of you on your smartphones have a flashlight function. If you were to take out your smartphone and turn on the flashlight, most of the people in this room would hardly even notice. Why? Because it's so bright in here. But if you were to be in this room late at night after the sun has gone down and there's no light filtering through those windows, and if the overhead lights were off in here, you would need that flashlight on your phone to see where you're going, lest you bash your shin against a chair. In the darkness, the light makes all the difference. And this is the opportunity for us. In our dark world, we can shine as lights for the Lord. We can Walk out what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father in heaven. And so we teach the children to sing this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. How many of you learned that song as a child? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. What an opportunity we have. You say, well, Paul, I would, I would love to shine as a light in a dark world. I would love to make that kind of difference for Christ and bring hope to those around me who are lost in darkness. Paul, could you give me a practical step? Where's an area where I can start shining as a light for the Lord? Paul says, all right, I'll give you one specific example. Here's a way that you can shine for the Lord. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Come on, Paul. I mean, couldn't you have talked about like one of those really bad sins that other people do? Did you really have to bring up the one that I struggle with? I mean, who among us doesn't struggle with grumbling? I know I do. Paul says, all things, do all things without grumbling or disputing? I mean, can we at least get a pass when we're watching the Detroit Lions play? I mean, surely if ever there was an occasion for grumbling, an excuse for grumbling, it would be watching my football team on a Sunday afternoon in the fall. Paul says, all things. Well, Paul, what if I'm having like one of those really, really, really bad weeks? What if people are treating me unfairly and unkindly? Surely I can complain then. I mean, this Paul guy sounds like a guy whose life is a little bit too easy. <laughs> no, remember, he was writing these words 
even as he was unjustly incarcerated in Rome as a result of preaching the gospel. He knew what it was to be unfairly treated. If anyone had a reason to grumble, it was the author of these words. And yet he says, do all things without grumbling. But grumbling is one of those sins that is so common among Christians that I think we can be tempted to downplay its seriousness. We can wink at it. We can make excuses for it because, well, everybody does it. But the truth is to grumble is to question the faithfulness of God. And this is a serious thing indeed. Remember back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, after the children of Israel had been brought out of slavery by the power of God, rescued from the hand of Pharaoh and the most powerful army of that time, three days after they miraculously made it through the Red Sea, they felt a little bit thirsty and they grumbled. And then they felt a little bit hungry and they grumbled some more. God had just proven beyond a doubt his power and his faithfulness, and yet they grumbled. Paul says in verse 14, don't grumble because, verse 15, you are children of God. Do you believe your father is able or don't you? Do you believe your father is faithful or don't you? There are so many things we feel justified in complaining about. Oh, these potholes. Man, what are they doing with our tax dollars? These roads are horrible. I mean, I drove through one the other day. It was bigger than my car. I mean, it's unbelievable. What are these people even doing? Who put them in charge? Well, how about I try something like this? Lord, thank you. I even have a car. Lord, I'm sorry that I have not been faithful in praying for my leaders as you've instructed me to do so. Lord, remind me to pray for them as I should, and maybe especially the ones that seem to be particularly incompetent at their job. Oh, did you you hear what so-and-so said? Did you see what so-and-so did? Do you see what they posted? I mean, the nerve of that person. Lord, thank you for being so patient with me. Help me to be patient with the difficult people in my life. Oh, these kids. Oh, my kids are driving me up a wall. I mean, I just can't get a break. If I have to wipe one more snotty nose, I mean, I am going to lose it. Lord, thank you for the blessing of children. Help me to lead them well. Give me the energy and the patience that I need to be a good mom, to be a good dad. You know, isn't it sad that some of the very things we complain about are the things we prayed for years ago? I can't believe these gas prices, this inflation, it's ridiculous. Lord, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for always providing. Thank you for your promise that you will supply all my needs according to your riches in glory. Lord, I can't wait to see how you will work this together for good. How it would stand out like a light in the darkness if only God's 
people wouldn't whine. This is a heart check for all of us. Ask yourself, would my friends characterize me as someone who is content or someone who is a complainer? If I were to ask them honestly, what would they say? You say, well, Mike, you, you don't understand what I go through. I mean, you don't understand what's going on in our world. Just take a look around you. Don't be naive. We live in crazy times. Yes, I know we do. And this verse is especially for crazy times such as we are living in. We have an opportunity to process these things differently than those around us because our Father is in heaven. To quote another children's song, he's got the whole world in his hands. The children of God should be the most content, optimistic people on this planet. Grumbling is not befitting of those who have a strong and faithful Father in heaven. We will shine as lights as we display this unusual contentment and peace and hope. Paul says you will also shine as lights, moving ahead to verse 16, as we hold fast to the word of life. Another powerful phrase here, holding fast to the word of life. There are those who will turn away from Jesus when the going gets tough. There are those who will turn away when the truths of God's word come into conflict with the values of our culture, are you going to turn away? Are you going to hold fast to the word of life? It's the word of life, the word of eternal life. Hold fast to it. I'm reminded of John chapter 6 when Jesus was giving some hard sayings to his followers. And as a result, those who had identified as followers of Jesus Christ began turning away. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to turn away also? love the answer that Simon Peter gave. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He said, Jesus, I don't care that these people are turning away from you. They're not going to find anyone else who can get them to heaven. I'm going to stay with you because you have the words of life. Hold fast, Paul says. We can endure some temporary unpopularity in light of eternity. And we can also endure some sacrificial labor in light of eternity. Notice as verse 16 goes on, Paul says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. I don't believe this is a, a sinful pride. This is a joyful satisfaction in the Lord. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you all should be glad and rejoice with me. Boy, in a world full of self-interest and self-preservation, how unusual, how refreshing for someone to sacrifice joyfully for others. This was the example of Paul, and this is a level of spiritual maturity that we all should seek to grow into. Paul was willing to not only labor, but even to lay down his life for the good of others' faith. 
Do you feel that responsibility for others in your life? Do you feel that responsibility for brothers and sisters in Christ that you are so committed to their spiritual good that you would do whatever it takes to see them grow? Parents, do you have this kind of commitment for your children that you would sacrifice whatever you need to sacrifice to see them pointed toward Jesus Christ and eternal hope in him? In most cases, this won't look like sacrificing your life but it could look like sacrificing some of your own interests. It will look like sacrificing some of your time and some of your finances and some of your efforts. Serving is a sacrifice. Helping others grow in Christ is a sacrifice. Paul knew this well, but he says in verse 17, I rejoice in this. He wasn't bummed out by the sacrifices he had made. Man, this really makes me want to grow in Christ to the extent where I would not be grudging, but actually joyful at the opportunity to sacrifice for someone else's good. I'm just being real with you. This is not easy for me. A couple days ago, we celebrated the first birthday of my youngest son, Silas. And to celebrate his birthday, we took him out to get his first taste of ice cream. Of course, I had some ice cream as well. Silas's older brothers had some ice cream too. And he got his very first taste. Now, I love ice cream. So it was not a hard thing for me to go to the ice cream place, to buy some ice cream for me and for my family, and to enjoy my little one having his first taste. Well, he really, really liked his ice cream. And he quickly died what we had bought for him, and he wanted more. And so I started dipping into my own ice cream so that he could continue to enjoy his first birthday celebration. But I'm ashamed to admit to you that I was a little hesitant in that. (laughs) Unless you think that's lame, I don't know if I've fully explained to you how much I love ice cream. I mean, I love ice cream. So even for my little one-year-old, there was a small, unsanctified part of my heart that did not want to give it up. And of course, there are many more significant ways that the Lord calls us to sacrifice our resources, our time, our energy for others. Oh, to have the heart of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Paul had that heart. He says in verse 18, even if I am to be martyred for the spiritual good of others, don't be sad for me. Be glad and rejoice with me. He says like a good Chick-fil-A employee, it's my pleasure. I will pour myself out for you in any way necessary to see you grow in Christ. What a joy it is to progress toward even this level of spiritual maturity. People just don't talk this way. They don't say, be glad and rejoice with me, even as I'm possibly facing execution. This is a joy that only Christ can produce. This is a joy that can only come through the powerful working of God in our hearts. This is a joy that will shine like a light in a dark world. Let it shine, let it shine Let it shine. Amen. Father, we're so grateful for your work in our lives. 
left to ourselves. Oh, Lord, we are, <laughs> we are so pathetic. We're so lame in our selfishness. We're so sad when we think of who we would be without you, and yet we rejoice that you have worked in us through the power of your wonderful son, Jesus Christ, through the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that this text of Scripture today would be hope-giving, would be energizing, would be life-giving for this dear congregation of believers, that they would fully trust in you to do your work and be fully energized to work it out. Lord, give us your grace to shine as lights in a dark world world, that we would know the joy of making an impact for you and for your glory. Lord, even as your grace has come to us through this text of scripture, I pray that your grace will go with us as we head into another week and that it will empower us to glorify you with every aspect of our lives. And so we praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.